Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet David Radovich and Dee Dee Wilson, two very talented and well-published Charlotte poets. David and Dee Dee will be reading and discussing their recent books that involve connected poems. Dee Dee's book, Liza, The New Orleans Years from Main Street Rag, is a journey of discovery and hardship for a young woman who travels to and settles in the new world in the 19th century. David's book, America Abroad, An Epic of Discovery, explores the grand adventure of American settlement and expansion into the world over several centuries. We start the show with Dee Dee reading Happy Hours from her book Under the Music of Blue, followed by David reading Sterling from his book America Bound. Happy Hours. And what would Fran have done without her glass, her little napkin of impeccable linen twisted in her hand? We loved this beautiful aunt's angle of elbow firm against her wheelchair's steel. She was daring fate, drinking with M.S., but who's to say it didn't get her through? And my father, who poured with a heavy hand, tipped the decanter for nips of sherry after church. And when I ripened into a woman's complaints, he placed a silver spoon in a crystal glass, shook in sugar, a jigger of bourbon, tilted the kettle and offered a toddy, hot to soothe and confuse. Oh, so good to feel it. Nothing like the vanilla extract I drank in the pantry with my best friend, waiting all one afternoon for something to change. The ants in the Delta are well preserved. They sit on open porches playing rubbers of bridge. If it's not five, someone turns the clock. Glasses of bourbon sweat in the heat. Maids bring chocolates and ice. My mother's the life of the party. Two or three sips and she's on. The night she was jilted and got in her papa's bourbon. She tells this story on herself, how she was wearing silk pajamas, blue with lush embroidery. She swooned over the piano in her parents' parlor. 
and the man she would marry scooped her into his arms and carried her up the winding staircase, dizzy for good. And I was born out of the liquid bodies into the arguable joy. I was born, little sweetener, and everyone raised a glass. Sterling. It all seems so ironic now. In college, I was totally out there, and I do mean out there. Any demonstration within a hundred miles, I was there, carrying a sign, screaming, black power, all that jazz. It felt good. It felt real good, and I believed. Whitey, the system, they were about to go the way of the dinosaur. My daddy said, why don't you prepare for a real job? Law, medicine, even accounting. I didn't survive the good war for no sociology shit. Black studies he always spat out with open scorn. But that's where it was. The action, the freedom, the energy, and it was a good place to be in those days. Nothing at all wrong with majoring in sociology. Only no jobs. Reality hit the big fan. So I signed up, innocent as the proverbial babe. I couldn't have been thinking, ticket to what? As it turned out, the jungles of Vietnam. Lord, I thought Alabama was hot. It felt at first like the oven of Satan himself, only humid, with the air clawing over you with tongs. But the setting wasn't so bad overall. Sweating, crawling around, pretending to be accomplishing something, till boom, that shell hit and everything went black. Black as night. And I'm not talking African skin black, which is mostly brown anyway, at least in my case. I'm talking black as everlasting absence of any light, sun or moon. Blind as Oedipus in, where was it? Thebes? Joe was beside me with his leg blown off, laughing like a maniac. I'll never play baseball again. I'll never play baseball again. Almost like he was glad to be rid of the American pastime. But I looked out and saw nothing more than the end of my favorite life, the life I had been so busy acting in. No more civil rights, no more upping the system, just feeling my life ooze out like the lost soul I always was, prisoner of the old South, not yet crawling to the new. As the man said, sockets dripping in tainted blood, I was blind, but now I see. I see in myself a fool of the first order who believed we could really change the system, make it help the poor, the damaged, the folks with the dark skin who suffered so much and will never get their justice without some serious blood. Man, was I a babe, innocent and so blind. And now I stare at the world. I look at everybody through the heart of myself and see it clear as a shell, break open, like a flower. David Radovich writes poetry, drama, and essays, often on social issues. He's published five full-length collections of poetry and three chapbooks, along with individual poems in many journals and anthologies. His plays have been performed across the U.S. and in Europe. Although David is happy to be a Charlottean, he has been a nomad for much of his life, having been born in Massachusetts, raised in Oklahoma and Idaho, and gone to college in Kansas, British Columbia, and Scotland. He's also taught in West Germany for two years and for many years in Illinois. Perhaps that explains his interest in national and international themes. Diddy Wilson did not seek adventure, adventure found her. 
She simply followed her love of writing to a job at her hometown newspaper, the Alexandria Daily Town Talk, where she wrote routine obituaries, and to a second newspaper, the Dallas Times Herald, where she copyrighted recipes for a while before being asked to become the travel editor. Suddenly she was flying to Venezuela with celebrities Rod Serling and June Lockhart, exploring Jamaica with crooner Andy Williams, being chased by a wild bull elephant in the Serengeti, having silk dresses and pearl-covered shoes made to order in Hong Kong. Dee Dee finally fluttered down to Mary, as she says, have three children and confined her writing to the quiet pursuit of poems, which have appeared in numerous journals and anthologies in the seven poetry collections, the most recent of which is Mrs. H. and her Tootie Falutie Ways from Main Street Rag. Her first book, Glass, was published as a finalist for the uh, Pearsone Press Award. Her second, Sea of Small Fears, won the Main Street Rag chapbook competition. Both David and Dee Dee have been president of the Charlotte Writers Club, one of the oldest such organizations in the state, coming up on its 100-year anniversary. David also served as president of the Thomas Wolfe Society and North Carolina Poetry Society, and he currently coordinates the Gilbert Chapel Distinguished Poets Series. Dee Dee, welcome to the show. Thank you. David, welcome. I'm glad to be here. So you've both traveled extensively and seen many parts of the world. Uh, David, uh, you know, as we talked about uh, in the opening here, you've been a nomad much of your life, been born in Massachusetts, raised in Oklahoma and Idaho, gone to college in Kansas, British Columbia, Scotland, taught in West Germany. Uh, I mean, come on. You've seen a lot of the world. A lot of places. <laughs> yeah, and Didi, you... Uh, became a travel editor. You said uh, flying to Venezuela with Rod Serling and June Lockhart and exploring Jamaica with crooner Andy Williams. I mean, come on. And the Serengeti. I mean, My name dropping. Yeah. <laughs> you are. You are. Uh, well, so these experiences, I mean, you've both, you're both well-traveled. Uh, must, first of all, it must have been exciting to see so many different places, David, growing up and, and in your career. Absolutely. And, and there's nothing better to teach you than living in other places, living abroad, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you can be fully aware of your Americanness unless you live outside the country for a while or travel outside the country. Yeah, indeed, he had some sort of Ernest Hemingway type experiences here, right? The Serengeti. I mean, oh, you mean with the elephant? Oh, yeah, that was so. Yeah, yeah, you said a wild bull elephant. <laughs> we were silly tourists with our heads out of the top of a Land Rover. And that elephant didn't like it one bit. And then the uh, driver of the Land Rover managed to. Um, kill the motor scare us even further (laughs) anyway we did escape obviously well the reason i started with this opening about travel is i wanted to find out how this experience might have influenced your writing david start with you well i think uh you learn about otherness other ways of living other ways of thinking and so much of that works into my writing as it became clear in the poem i just read being and that a, and that a, and that book, you know, America Bound. Uh, of course, you're just reading one piece from that entire book. But talk about that for just a second. With that, you're covering a lot of territory in that book. Well, the book focuses on American culture from World War II to the war in Iraq, mm-hmm. and a lot of the focus is on war and and cultural dislocation. It it starts with one black veteran from World War II in in Europe and a white veteran in the Philippines and their sons serve in the same unit in Vietnam mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's how they get to know each other and then the mortar shell hits and one is blinded and the other loses a leg and mm-hmm. then their children um, the grandson um, serves in I- the war in Iraq mm-hmm. so the legacy continues 
and you you talk about the fact uh, through your bio that your your stories have sort of a social justice piece to them, and I could hear that a little bit in this poem that you read. I mean, is, is there some David Radovich in the, in this character from youth uh, out there with the signs and <laughs> and carrying on and fighting the good fight? To, that may be, and I yeah. and I also I had did have a black friend named Sterling, mm. and but, but although this is very loosely based on right. him, but yeah. still I get a lot of inspiration from the other people I I've met in life. Mm-hmm. And and Didi, how about your experience as far as travel? How has that influenced your writing? Well, it's interesting as you were talking about it. I really have traveled extensively and rarely have used very much of it in my writings. However, um, I visited a son, one of my sons, in Japan several times, and one of the books that I've written actually is based on that visit. It's called Sea of Small Fears. But what's interesting to me is when I have traveled, I think I turn it back to the personal. Um, That book is about um, getting on one of a sailboat that he and a friend bought in Japan and my great fears because the first day we took it out the boat leaked and this led uh, to the entire book about um, sailing with my son in Japan and it really doesn't involve sights I'd seen or other things that you would expect someone would write about so I so I just I'm thinking about it as being turned back to the personal Mm-hmm. to the intimate to um to your you know your small experience in that big world well both of your writings and we're going to get into your your books here in a little bit that has some connected poetry in it uh, they, they, they're they're both journeys and it's going to be you know so you we're traveling to different places and but for just a moment i want to talk about this place called charlotte because you are both connected here now and you've been active in the uh, literary community um, and leaders in the literary community. You've both been, what, presidents of the Charlotte Writers Club, right? That's true. Right? true. I wanted to ask you about that because that, that organization is coming up on its 100th anniversary in a few years. And uh, what, what did that experience mean to you being part of a local writing group like the Charlotte Writers Club? David? Well, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, I met so many people, and I I really like to socialize and, and interact with people who are – interested in writing and that's the place to do it Um, and it was a wonderful entree into charlotte literary life and it's i branched out from Mm -hmm. from there it Mm -hmm. it was a great introduction to me and Dee, you actually recently spoke to the charlotte writers club and gave a little uh history talk about about the writers club i did Uh, actually i was president during the 75th anniversary Uh, so we had i had done some research Uh, to honor that anniversary so I was able to pull from a lot of that research to speak to the group you started out that talk by saying it was 1920 World War I was over 1918 flu epidemic had just ended women could vote and they no longer wore girdles well (laughs) the reason I brought that up is because uh, Delia Kimball who founded the Writers Club uh, founded it in that in those times when a right. uh, woman, women weren't out there doing quite as much as they're doing today. And uh, what do you think, think it was like for a woman to be taking the lead back then and, and being a writer 
at that in that time period? Well, there were women writers, and actually she wrote short stories, or what they used to call novelettes, but moved to Charlotte in 1928, and in order to make friends and to continue her writing, which was extremely important to her, she uh, gathered a group of writers, and they started meeting and critiquing one another's work. But they always did it, according to your presentation, over food, right? There was well, <laughs> I don't know about at that point in time. You said but, there was always but, <laughs> someplace to eat as a cafeteria or as a banquet hall well, or something. You know? when I was a member of the yeah. Writers' Club, that's the way it was. Oh, you, you brought the food in. I, I said, well, yeah, we yeah. Were, met in cafeterias <laughs> for years which was um, always kind of amused me. And David, you, in addition to your work with the Writers Club, you're also, I guess you've both been involved with the North Carolina Poetry Society, yes. is that right? Mm-hmm. And that's also an organization that's got some legs to it, right? Well, and interestingly enough, the North Carolina Poetry Society was founded 10 years after the Charlotte Writers Club by members of the Charlotte Writers Club. So it oh, has a Charlotte okay. connection. Right. And uh, it's been going, it will be, going on 90 years pretty soon so these are two of the oldest organizations in the state yeah and just for our listeners these are organizations that don't require any uh, pedigree to get into absolutely not (laughs) you are right you have people (laughs) writers of all level in fact in some cases you just have readers who appreciate um, poetry the astonishing thing to me is when i was president of the club i'm not sure how many members we had but i if it were more than 40 or 50, I'd mm-hmm. be surprised. I think today they have 280 members of the yeah. Charlotte Writers Club. Yeah, it's, it's a great organization, yeah. and we have programming, and we have writing competitions, and we have critique groups. So if you're out there listening and you want to get involved in uh, some good organizations, th- these are two of them. All right, so a couple, couple things. You're both poets. You've been poets for a long time. What jump-started your desire to write poetry, David? Well, um, actually, it's kind of interesting. I, I had written, when I was young, and, and even in elementary school, I used to write little skits and things, and I did that up into high school, but it wasn't until I started meditating in college that all the inner life... You, you meditated in college? And, yeah. and I still do. But, okay. Uh, You're and, not still in college, though. But, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so it just unleashed, it unleashed the interior life right. for me, and... I started writing poems, and I've been going ever since. All right. Didi, what, what got you going with poetry? I guess my g- biggest memory is uh, sitting up in bed at night with the dictionary, and I would write uh, these little verses trying to use words that I'd never seen before. I really think it started in high school when I realized that I loved to write, and mm. uh, almost everything in my life has revolved around writing. Well, as I said in the opening, you're both well-published uh, poets, uh, but in this day and time, how hard is it for a poet to to have their voice heard, uh, and, and read for that matter? I mean, you're, you're competing against uh, the media, you're competing against novels, you're competing against other kinds of books. Talk about that a second. Well, I think if you're shy, it's it may be difficult, but there's so many wonderful groups out there, poetry groups, um, you can get involved and Charlotte Writers Club is a great example. Mm-hmm. You can get over your shyness and go to the open mic sessions. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing how many opportunities there are for readings, open mic, and so on. So um, you can test your work and get feedback, and you can join critique groups and get feedback that way. Mm-hmm. I think um, you have you do have to work at it, mm-hmm. as as you would with anything. But opportunities are there for beginners. 
Now, I'm not a poet, and I'm kind of learning on the job here how to ask questions of poets. So uh, let's, let's taking your combined level of experience here, let's do a little poetry 101 for a second. And, and let's do it in the context of the poems that you read to lead off the, the show. To talk about the kind of piece that you read and how that might compare to some other kind of poetry that, that you write. Uh, who wants to take that first? Well, the poem I read was obviously a dramatic monologue, and it's told through the persona of a, a youngish African American, mm-hmm. and uh, that's obviously challenging to do, and it's not typical of, of most poets or the poetry that I write. Uh, most of the time, one writes a poem in response to a stimulus, maybe out of nature or some personal tragedy or um, joyful experience, and wanting to communicate that with other people. Now, Dee Dee, happy hours. Were you under the influence of something when you wrote this? So? <laughs> oh, no. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I thought about that when I chose that poem to read. Um, that poem, of course, is it's about alcohol and how it suffuses our lives. It's also about family. And I write some about family. I think some of my readers would think I write more about family than I think I write about family because I I like to write every kind of poetry. Some of my poetry is very light. Some of it is really might be difficult for the reader. Well, I was going to say that, you know, I read both of your books um, that we're going to be talking about here in a moment, and I enjoyed them, but I have a question are poetry books meant to be read more than once so that you can see things perhaps that that I might have missed the first time around? Is that Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and I have people that have read mine three or four times and they've told me. But yeah. they're also meant to be read um, um, periodically. You don't have to sit and read the whole book all at once. Hmm. You can read a few poems in the evening and then pick it up a few days later and read some more poems. So... Um, it's a different reading experience. David is absolutely right about that. One thing I've done is two of the books I've written have been stories in themselves. The book Eliza, The New Orleans Years, is, and it is a story. And I often tell people, please start from the beginning and read to the end. And I have another book coming out that's also a story. So it, it's kind of, that's a little different kind of thing to do. But generally, reading poems, just picking them out of a book, is uh, the perfect way to do it, really. All right, and that's really uh, a good transition, Dee Dee, because now we're going to actually talk about your two books, uh, which are, I'm calling them connected poems. I don't know if that's the right terminology or not, but you're telling a story throughout the entire book through different different poems in the book. Have I got that right, David? That's correct. Okay, and so we're going to start out with Eliza. Okay, so... Uh, I want you to give us a little bit of a uh, foundation here, uh, Dee Dee, for what we're about to... Eliza was a book that had to be written. Uh, I grew up with a family rumor, and that was that my great-great-grandfather had been in a duel, and he killed Eliza's husband and married Eliza. This is something, if you're a writer, you cannot live with a rumor like that. <laughs> you, can't, you can't let that go. <laughs> and not write about it. Right. So about, um, in the, it was in the uh, 1990s, maybe 1995, 96, I decided I wanted to write this story. So I sat down and, re- and wrote about six or seven poems, so proud of myself, and put them away 
and just lost interest for a while. And I kept thinking about it, and I realized that I'd done a very foolish thing in that you cannot write about a story that actually happened, even if it's fictionalized, without doing some really strong research. And that was going to be my question. Did did you do some research? Oh, absolutely. Um, I did use Google because Google is an incredible place to find out You don't have to apologize. I will not apologize. (laughs) But I did. I I would uh, scour old bookstores, old used bookstores, and I bought a number. I think I have about 20 books on New Orleans and on the South and and the Civil War and all of the, just, but I would buy books that were old. I tried not to have current books, and I was looking through them the other day, and a lot of them, I mean, they weren't written in the 1800s, but uh, a lot of them were written at around 1928, so there must have been a surge mm. of that sort of book at that point in time. Okay, so you're gonna but, re- you're gonna take us through um, a number of of these poems because they're short you know they're, they're little mm-hmm. uh, you could call them chapters almost of, of, of the book and and you're going to take four or five of these to start with giving us the title reading it and then after about four or five of them we'll stop and then we'll talk before we go to the, the second part of the reading papa had pulled us down preaching hellfire out of the flask of his mind he was the vicar though a slurry disgrace He'd reel and stutter, even weep. When the deacon tripped over him, stone cold in the nave, we wept, we prayed, we buried his body, engaged passage, and sailed. I slept at sea, as sound as Maria and little Louise, mom on deck, stuffing her grief with cakes and tea. And the captain, what did he want from me? my red hair, my fair skin. I was listless, losing horizons. He held me steady, preened and teased. Like Papa, he wore mutton chops. I wed at sea while my sister slept, tucked in. New Orleans. The smells are thicker than any in England. Coffee, sausages, sugared pecans flesh too ripe, too perfumed, my own captain unwashed, and me in sun-stained threads. On the levee, a leper is begging. Someone flips him a picayune, enough, I pray, for a dip of soup. I stumble on rocks and cobbles, pitch through the streets, beg for my sisters. I saw Louise, I did, peering back at me from a carriage, that small bleached face. I cried to her, I ran. My captain grabbed my sleeve. The sky is ringing with heat and mosquitoes. I'm weak-kneed, trying to breathe. Ah, scents of camphor and sassafras, the sweet reek of whiskey reeling from doors. The vocare, I sway against a wall. He leads me by the wrist to a filthy street, through a door, down an oily hall. My captain sets sail. I stand on the river bank, slapping at gnats with my glove, air so thick I barely inhale. 
And there on the key, that man, the one who touched my sleeve, I turned to hide my cheeks. What must he imagine? I grieve for my captain's absence. I'll weep when my husband returns. In the French market. I walk as fast as I can, threading the stalls. Acorn squash, late potatoes weigh my basket, anything to roast on the grate. Yams, kushal. He's here. I finger a sprig of sassafras, that man called Caleb. I am in reeling beneath the surface so deep I cannot breathe. I grip my shawl. I'll leave, yes. A girl glides by with macaroons and nougat, oranges, candy pecans. He sidles beside, drops a silver into the Marchand's hand, bows to me with figs, celeste, sweet figs from heaven. Anyone can see. I do not turn. I stand. I eat. I feast. My captain returns. A hiss on the twisted tongues of this city. Yes, I was late to the river, making my way through the streets. Rain, wind, mud and puddles, hogs on Rue Dauphine, and late to the quay, weaving through bales and kegs, barrels of bear oil, hogsheads of lard. And there was my captain, face a fury. What had he heard? I, I have done nothing. He rocked the room with my body. Now he is off, enraged. Somewhere Caleb waits to challenge him. Among the blood-soaked roses in St. Anthony's garden, trees will weep again. All right, Didi, so you've set us up for the duel. <laughs> we've, got, uh, for we, the we, we've, got, we've got death overseas, boarding a ship, uh, a young woman, the captain takes her for his bride. She ends up in this uh, strange <laughs> land with a strange smells in the, in the market. Uh, David, David, you've read this book too, right? I have. I have. And, um, That's New Orleans for you. <laughs> did you, uh, what was your, and this has been done to a play as well. Right. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and you've had a chance to read the whole, the whole book as well. How would you describe what Didi's done with this story and, and poetry? Well, all kinds of things struck me. Um, one is uh, I, I really like the character portraiture of this book and the, the evocation of individual characters and also um, history. Um, you feel like you're really there um, in that place. But what struck me just now as she was reading the wonderful smells and taste, (laughs) I don't think I remembered that as well. Um, That's wonderful because so much poetry is visual and Mm -hmm. this poetry is is, is smelling and tasting. It's it's quite lovely. Yeah, and and Didi, you're not, we're not gonna get the whole story because we want the readers to go buy the book and see what happens at the end right yeah but but uh and you're going to read another little segment here that follows the duel and follows her experiences but this is a woman who you somehow really did a deep dive on the research and don't you have an heirloom of some kind that relates to this story i'm in your possession wrote about in the book it's a little remote compared to this book i have a wedding ring uh eliza's daughter married a man during the a civil mm-hmm. war mm-hmm. and uh, I, I have that wedding ring the man was killed in the civil war 
and then he married my ancestor. I mean, she married my ancestor. So this story, it, 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 of course, we know something's going to happen here in the duel. You're going to read about the aftermath of that and some things that follow. But, but Eliza went on to try to build a life of her own uh, even beyond the Civil War, right? She ended out up out in California. Is that right? Well, she did. It's sort of a mystery because she left Caleb. Now, this is uh, many years you know, on, uh, she had had all of her children and, uh, she took, I think three of the younger children. And just to set the story up here, the, she's got the captain, there's going to be a duel. Caleb's going to enter her life, uh, after Caleb shoots the captain, we think. (laughs) Yes. Well, he marries her and he's my great great grandfather. And and then he marries her and then, and then great grandfather. Mm. And then you write about it. So, uh, you can make this turn out any way you want it to, I suppose. Yeah. I guess I could have, but I actually, uh, (laughs) I tried to keep it yeah. Keep it honest, but, um, you know, historical fiction. All right. Just a few more pieces here from, from this book, Eliza, to um, on the aftermath of the duel and, and some things that follow. So uh, whenever you're ready. The one who lives will want me when it is done. What if both are dead? If both survive, who will enter? And what should I wear for a face? I watch a flare from the hearth cast a shrouded shadow from the hall, the heft of a voice. After, I did not kill him, Caleb said. I found him dead, his pockets peeled, body spoiled like fruit on the key. I did not kill him, Caleb said. It was the crew, believe me, he said, one finger pressed against my lips. Caleb, he dresses me, buries his face in my hair. I grab his arm, reach for my shawl, pull him out to the courtyard. In the oil lamp's flickering rim, I watch the green-leafed yucca rattle its swords. Cannons are firing the curfew. I stay him with a touch, rip a button from his waistcoat, Hold it in my mouth to still my teeth. Ceremony. Cold brass opens the Gothic door, painted white. Light through yellow windows stains my sleeve. No tears will dim his eyes, though this man I take has trimmed his sharp goatee. The reverend's face is oily and round, his hair in threads. His voice falls away like footsteps down a corridor, returns with a vow louder than before. Men in this city do as they please. So who is dining with him at Moreau's? After the high note, that one dramatic flourish, wives are hidden behind the scrim. Center stage, the gentlemen bow to applause, are drunk, unruly, play the fool, cracking nuts in the pit, spitting across the wings. So who is dining with him at Moreau's? Does he regale her with tales of the river, the way those boatmen pulled around eddies, slipped through shoals? Talk of that stagecoach, the way it swayed, those twittering ladies, their cage of canaries. Does he tell her he teased the canaries? So who is dining with him? Will he take her out to Carrollton Gardens, swept away by the storm? 
stand entangled in the limbs of a fallen water oak? Will he urge her onto the levee to feel the river surge? Hold her, I know, too close on that slope. So, Diddy, thank you for that. I want to um, tell the listeners one other thing about this book, in addition to the fine poetry uh, and the story they're going to get. At the end of this book, you have sort of a, a behind-the-scenes section, you call it, where um, you, you take each of these little chapters and you provide some historical context. Where did that idea come from? It just felt necessary. It felt, uh, I just felt that it had to be done, and I wanted to do it. I felt compelled to do it. Well, it's, it's a great way to sort of see, as you say, behind the scenes to the lyrical story. You've got some of the facts that, that go to support it. All right, so listeners, we're going to take a short break here, uh, not long. Uh, stay with us. When we come back, uh, we're going to do America Abroad, an epic of discovery with uh, David Radovich. And uh, then we're going to have our author-to-author section with both David and Didi. So, uh, so stay tuned. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Brian Baltashevitz uh, in the Queen City Podcast Studio. Hey, Brian. Hey, Landis. How are you? I'm great. So I'm now a part of this network. What is it, Brian? What is it? Um, it is a, a collection of, um, as we record this, 18 locally produced Charlotte-based podcasts. So they're produced by people here in Charlotte. They're all about Charlotte. And they're produced for people who live in Charlotte, who are, who are interested in learning more about their city. And lots of different conversations, right? Yeah, uh, uh, news and current events, nonprofit features, comedy, food and leisure um, activities, uh, and, and books too. Don't forget books. And books, and books, of <laughs> course. How could I have forgotten? Books? And speaking of books, what you reading these days, Brian? Um, I am currently about halfway through, and I say that uh, I've been halfway through this book for about twelve months. But are you not reading it on your phone? Are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. I am not. I'm reading an actual book with paper and <laughs> okay. binding and glue and everything. Um, it's a book by a um, showbiz historian named Cliff Nesteroff, and it's called um, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. And does that grow out of your love of comedy? You're, you're part of this po- Comedy Zone podcast, too, right? It does. It does. Yeah, yeah I've been a fan of comedy, have performed uh, stand-up for um, a long time. And uh, you're not standing up now. You're sitting down. I am. I am. I'm at the moment, I am seated, but occasionally I do stand. All right. What's the website, Brian? Uh, QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Lance. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, listeners, we're back with uh, Didi Wilson and David Radovich. Uh, we're now uh, shifting to David's book of connected uh, poems, and this is from America Abroad, an Epic of Discovery. David, t- tell us about this book and what inspired it. Well, it's... Uh I don't know exactly what inspired it, but I am interested in the idea of of what America is. And um, so I wanted to explore that more deeply. So I wrote, this book covers the period from early settlement before it really was a country all the way to space exploration. Right, and it, and it's it's not just about those that are in America, but it's about those that are coming to America as well. Some of the early settlers as as well. Exactly. Um, but then you take us through different periods in American history and you kind of put us in those locations, right? I have I have one section here called Ancestors that deals with legendary figures like Sacagawea right. and Coronado, Ponce de Leon, uh Leif Erikson and uh the but there are two main narrators. One narrator is Uncle Sam, who's mm. kind of a Paul Bunyan-esque figure, who's <laughs> self-confident and entrepreneurial and right. expansive. 
And the other is the Statue of Liberty, whom I also call Ms. Liberty. And she cares about the poor, the downtrodden immigrants, those in need. So they have a spirited discussion back and forth mm-hmm. uh, about the true America and where America's heading. So that, that animates the whole collection. Okay, so the three pieces you're going to do first are Landscape, Gettysburg, and Edge of the World. Anything you want to say about those? Yes, Landscape is a poem about Sacagawea and has a lot of Native American elements. And her body was never found, so there's a mystery about that. Gettysburg is the story of the battle of Gettysburg told from a southern soldier's point of view. And Edge of the World is about uh, the movement west that starts... It started originally with slaves from Africa and European immigrants, then moving all across the country and ending up in California. All right. Well, anytime you're ready. Landscape. I, Sacagawea, inhabit hills and trees, rivers that drown enemies, wind that carries smoke of our ancestors who came up from the ground on their twisting grapevine into the sun. This I showed, some of it, to Lewis and Clark when they came. Nice enough men, not yet so bankrupt of heart to take what was ours. Rivers took us to the mouth of time and back, into history, path of storm-twisted sycamores, herons that stand like silent warriors. So much have you forgotten, sacred heart of the earth you cut into quilt squares and poisoned like startled snakes. No wonder I went away, to hide again so you'd never find me. No one knows where I left behind my bones. I like it that way. No trace can be found except by those who worship their ancestors, keep the true faith, leave Christians, so-called, to their books they never follow. I'll go now like sun into rock, splitting open the darkness. That's why they call me the bird woman. I sing high in the air, Words you will never know. Gettysburg. The only answer was to take the battle to the north. I dreaded leaving our homes, families, a settled way of life. So much disease and suffering. My feet were mush and constant ache. Many of us fell onto the flats at night like already corpses who longed for oblivion. I remember the rows of white tents, pitched and tenuous, sometimes preternaturally calm as catacombs, other times erupting in laughter, sweet song, longing, diaries, blues so deep they could wear uniforms of the enemy. I was mostly restless, walking the lines and thinking too much about tomorrow. Day came as it would, hotter and hotter, a white-hot sun burned down death on us, One-third of our comrades wasted charging up that hill, Cemetery Hill, as it came to be sorely named. I remember the whites of their eyes and the white, turned faces of the fallen, pupils aimed back into their heads like reversed cannons. There was nothing I could do but watch blood stream across the heavens and keep firing. Finally, we waved our white flags and crept down the hill, tugging and slowly rolling into the night. We knew it was over. What did we learn? Suffering doesn't always hobble into wisdom. The body can roll as a hearse with no headlights, 
the nurse with the white bandage merely hides the deep emptying. Edge of the World Take me further west, California, where dreams both live and die, where fog hangs over the bay, kissing the Golden Gate, deeper south, where sun never stops above tiles of swimming pools beyond stoned palaces. Let me stay there forever. Before there were thoroughfares, SUVs, security systems, marches for immigration, riots over race, fights against water, poisoning of fruit fields, wine into industries. Let me remember that first arrival, rolling our way west like the sun, tired as a blue ox yoked to the heavy wagon of hopes and fears. Or drew me most, gold dust and dreams beyond living. No toil or tyranny, self-baked in paradise with a cocktail that never gives out, grapes hanging succulent above, waters that never recede. Could heaven be purer than mountains arched over peaceful waters, seals curled on rock dumplings, surf-cresting shorescapes? Oh, how I lolled long before Chinese rail gangs and laundries, Alcatraz, Disneying hordes. All of us thought our lusts had been stilled. Our feet had been cut to ribbons and our minds to rock, but when we stood beside the mission looking west, at the far edge beyond the black world, God delivered his promise into our calloused hands. Only then could there be freeways and mudslides, smog alerts and silicon veils for a future with nowhere to go. All right, David, that uh, that last little bit there, future with nowhere to go, come on. <laughs> well, there's no farther west to go from California. Okay, um, well, I guess in that sense, we'll, yes. we'll take it there. We, yes. you know, there's yeah. there's a future otherwise. Yes, that I, yeah. that's right. I did, I did find a couple of lines really, um, you know, in the Gettysburg piece, for example, what did we learn? Suffering doesn't always hobble into wisdom. The body can roll as a hearse with no headlights. And it made me think about the Confederate Army marching away from Gettysburg, you know, almost like a hearse with no headlights. Exactly. It's, uh, it, it, that had to be a, you know, it, it was a terrible time. The, the battle was a, just a terrible loss of life, and then the war just, just kept going on. It did. And then, in, in, of course, I, I love the Lewis and Clark story and, uh, you know, what they did on PBS with that story and everything about it. And, and, and but you throw kind of an interesting little jab here in the landscape, the Sacagawea. This I showed some of it to Lewis and Clark when they came. Nice enough men, not yet so bankrupt of heart to take what was ours. Early enough to where they could be, you know, friends with the right. Native Americans, right. show us the way, but they're not well formed enough to actually just, you know, r- rape the land and take everything. Well, that wasn't so much Lewis's yeah. Clark as it was right. later. It was Americans. a late, it, yeah, it was who yeah. came le- next. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. There are I, a lot of references in there to different tribes right. and, and different histories there. Dee Dee, do you have something you want to add to that? I just think that David has such a strong, um, solid voice, and it from it we see his love of America and his love for what America was and what's uh, what has gone into creating this country and I, I there were just there's 
this one line that I want to read that comes from Landscape that I just uh, did like so much. I'll go now like sun into rock, splitting open the darkness. That's just beautiful. Mm. Thank you, David. Well, you're certainly welcome. Okay, David, uh, you've inspired us there with those three. Let's, uh, let's, let's go to a couple more from, from the book here. This, you've got two that you're going to read, uh, Himalayas and Flame. Tell us about those two pieces. Well, I, one thing I should mention is that the, the main part of the book takes Americans out in the four directions of the compass. So okay. there's a group of poems going north to Alaska, going west from uh, over the way to California, going south down to Chile, and then going east to China and Japan. So I'm going to read a poem about India in a, in a minute, and then I will read the final poem of the book. Um, Which is Lady Liberty. Lady yeah. Liberty is yeah. talking, yeah. and um, and at the end, Uncle Sam is still making great plans for, <laughs> plans for yeah. going to other planets and doing great things, And but she has the last word. As she should. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Himalayas. India I escaped to with a guide, the best way. A sage you may have heard of, Rabindranath Tagore, who led me to Agra in silent, reflective pools of the glittering Taj Mahal, with its pink hues at dawn and memories of love. I stood like a statue until the hordes drove me into the marketplace. Then we moved up, up toward the roof of the world where monks chant double-toned, piercing red chambers with their echoing voices, and everyone learns, desirous or not. I stare like a sinner, touring the last sanctuary, closest to gods any human may venture. They tell me, sit on the mat like a Buddha and clear your mind. I meditate like mad, trying to unfold the myriad layers of present and past, opening up self as petals of an onion wow, this is definitely not the American way, thinking. They say, no, you're trying too hard. You're working. It's essential just to be. Be, I say. I'm used to doing, accomplishing, spreading myself over the world. The path inward is the one journey I've never taken, never attempted. It's harder than Everest in the end and more treacherous, deeper than destiny slippery as the stones of cherries. Flame. We're still not together, though I keep standing tall. He promises way more than he can deliver, rambles with zest, then covers up his misdeeds like a guilty monk, afraid of his organs. Someday, I hope we can face life together, walk down the same aisle, keeping promises, greeting the unbidden in front of our calloused feet. So many needs are still raw. Till then, I'm still looking, casting bridges over chasms, holding the harbor together between warships and pleasure boats, feeding the multitudes, nursing the sick, clutching the forgotten, holding high this great flame for the next coming. I want to stand up and uh, do the Pledge of Allegiance now. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and But I like the conflict there at the end, David, between Lady Justice and Uncle Sam. Yeah, you know, it and, runs and, through, throughout, okay, although yeah. it 
comes yeah. in and goes a bit. But she's kind of giving him the what for here at the end. Yeah. Yes, she is. Yeah, uh, and uh, trying to pull him back in and get him to focus on what's important, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And in the other piece, in addition to taking us to a different part of the world, you, you took us to this concept of, you know, what's harder, scaling the tallest peak in the world or digging deep into yourself? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. as Americans, we have not historically been that um, inward, although you, we have a culture of selfies now, but we haven't <laughs> done a whole lot with... And with, I just took a few of you, so, yeah, doing your, so, yes. so we'll have that. Too. I, didn't get, I didn't turn around and get me in the picture, but I got you, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah. we typically have not done a lot of introspection as a culture compared to other cultures, maybe. And um, we've, been, we've been known as an enterprising outward looking kind right, of people right. which is good uh, in many ways now both of you have been on a I use the word journey several times in this but I, I feel like that's what it is you've journeyed back to the 19th century Didi you've journeyed David around the world and both visually and externally and internally is that what a lot of your writing is about finding that you know trying to give meaning to to this world that we live in um, and, the, and the world that's come before us? I think that's true, but what strikes me today in particular is that both our books really unite poetry, drama, and fiction or narrative in, at the same time because they're both dramatic stories. They are stories and they're also poems or linked poems. So it's like a crossover song. It can be on more than one pop chart. Right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's just interesting that intersection of all yeah. three genres is yeah. there. Well, now's a good time then to do what we do in this show called the uh, author to author segment. And uh, just for the listeners, they don't know what these questions are, what's coming. So we're just going to play a little little Q&A here for a minute. Um, the, the first uh, couple of questions comes from uh, Linda Phillips. Linda Phillips, uh, she appeared in season two of the podcast. She's a She's a poet whose debut novel, Crazy, earned her numerous accolades. It was a YA novel written in verse. And uh, so she has these questions. Um, Did any of your high school yearbook comments point to the probability that you would end up writing poetry? (laughs) Mine did not. Yeah. How about you, Didi? Mine did not. I was uh, the most dependable senior woman. Oh, (laughs) that is good. That's not bad. That's not not bad. Not the poet of the future. Uh, here's a good one. Have you ever confessed to a fellow poet or writer how jealous you are when they make a bigger splash than you? <laughs> oh, sure. That I, it, I'm pretty open about my jealousy. <laughs> isn't that part of being a writer is being jealous of other writers? You know? <laughs> Absolutely, but I, I, I've learned to embrace it. Yeah. I think that's true of every profession, but yeah. um, actually I keep it to myself. Do you? Do you? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, did your parents, spouse, siblings, or offspring ever try to discourage you from becoming a writer, and did they have a good reason? Well, my father, I, I went to college as pre-med, and I was pre-med through undergraduate, and uh, ended up actually with a minor in, in chemistry and a major in psychology. But my father saw me going down the tubes. He said, the only worst <laughs> thing is art history. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could be worse than a writer. What about you, Dee? Anyone well, in your family I, try to discourage you? No. I studied journalism and was a newspaper person uh, for many years, and uh, 
I, I used to laugh because if I read poems to my mother that I'd written, I'd read about two, and she'd say, now one more, and that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, this is an interesting question here. Last one from Linda Phillips. Uh, say you had six months to live. Would you want to spend that time writing, finishing a work in progress, or would you want to put all that aside and focus on family and final arrangements? Uh, this is That's a tough question. Oh, that is tough. Maybe well, can, I'm going to answer because I've thought about this a, a, a lot. Okay. And um, I always think I want to finish a project. If I have a book that's not quite complete, Mm-hmm. That is what I feel like I want to do, mm-hmm. even though I probably would not. How about I you, mean, David? I, I agree with that. If I'm in the middle of a big project that I uh-huh. really want to get done, I would focus on that, I mm-hmm. think. Or I would want to, anyway. You'd think you would. I yeah, think. I would think I want. <laughs> uh, if I'm just uh, going along writing individual poems, that's less important yeah. than finishing a, right. a, a collection. Gotcha. Yes. All right, so we have another author here. This is also from Season 2, J.D. Dupuy. He's a co-author with Mary Laura Philpott of Poetic Justice, Legal Humor, and Verse, a collection that keeps lawyers and non-lawyers smirking, laughing, <laughs> and saying how true from beginning to end. Uh, J.D. has two questions. He says he's always interested in the process, how, when, and where people write. Uh, so, David, tell us about your writing process, the how, when, and where. Well, um, individual poems, uh, I write anywhere. I write something down in the doctor's office sometimes I just pull over in the car and write it down um, and then I go back obviously and revise it later because no poetry while driving right well I mean, no poetry while driving <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how poems will come to you at the grocery store or someplace and and I have to stop now in terms of a pl- and you carry, do you carry a little notebook I out? always have writing material with me because you never okay. know and you don't want to lose that good idea um, but if I'm doing a larger project obviously that takes planning and outlining and research so you have to go and and find things out america abroad i had to do a lot of research for that historical research so Mm -hmm. that i could be accurate what about you Dee? well one time i was so involved with the poem i'd stopped in front of a friend's house and uh, i stayed in that same spot and left my car in front of the driveway of the people across the street <laughs> for several hours. You were so focused <laughs> They on were searching for the, <laughs> the driver of the car. So focused. So do you normally but write in the mornings, evenings? Do you? I uh, have to say it would be more likely to be the morning, but any time, mm-hmm. any time. Mm-hmm. And um, y'all, y'all, so in poetry, do you write freehand or you use a computer or both what's what's your i always write it out and and uh by hand and usually with a pencil rather than a pen although i go back and scratch out a lot and so on Mm -hmm. but then i put it on a computer and revise it okay do you edit as you go or do you kind of get it out and then come back or well i usually no i usually write the thing out and then i edit a little bit there and then i go to the computer Mm -hmm. how about you Dee? in the past i have always written it out but lately i have found I guess it's age, but my mind goes faster than my hand, <laughs> so I have to do it on the computer. Okay. And I'm learning as I do it more and more, it, it, uh, it's easier. Okay. Last question uh, from J.D., and this would be a typical J.D.-type question here if, if, you've, if you've read his work. What is your go-to vice to cure or cope with writer's block? 
Oh, the best thing for me is to read poetry by other That's people. That's advice. No, well, I know that, oh, advice. Oh, advice. Depends oh on who you're reading, I guess. Yes, right? I guess. I guess so. Uh, that could I, be. I, could, I suppose that could be. I advice, think the yeah. advice would be too distracting. I'd want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does well. I mean, I guess what he's getting at here is that you know. Do you, do you get up and go watch Netflix? Do you get up and go have a drink? Do you do something different to kind of unlock your brain to kind of get back into something? Didi? Well, I've always dreamed of doing like some writers who um, drink themselves into oblivion and then all these ideas come, come to out, them that they out. never dreamed they would, right. you know, would ever have. But I've never done that. You've never done that? Okay. <laughs> well, that's probably a good thing you might forget where you parked yeah, that would be. you might forget where you parked your car where your <laughs> right. writing material was right 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 <laughs> well caffeine is usually good caffeine's yeah. a good yeah that's, yeah that's a good advice yeah, to have so all right well this is uh this has been a lot of fun let me before we finish up here i want to make sure that readers know sort of where to find your work and what's coming next uh dd what is coming next for you you've got a book coming out here. i do yeah. um i have written a very peculiar book uh it's the, the title is Mrs. H and her Tootie Falutie Ways. Uh, this is really a departure from anything I've ever done. It's somewhat light, but there is gravity in the book. It is actually my muse is a woman I knew when I was growing up, the mother of a friend who. Uh, drank martinis every afternoon, was very formal, very wealthy. A bit tootie-falooty, yeah. To very tootie-falooty. <laughs> anyway, so it is coming out in the next month or so, and I am having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, and by the time this comes out on the air, it'll it'll be out. So uh, That's right. we look forward to it. David, are you working on something now? I, I have a book called This Myriad, coming out later in the year, I think, uh, or maybe early next year. And mm-hmm. it's a celebration of the South, basically, uh, Southern culture, so mm-hmm. all the varieties of Southerness. And I've never done that kind of thing before. Good. So Good. I think that will be fun. And Didi, where can uh, people find your work? Let's just say on Amazon or through the publishers. Yeah. Or all through right. me. All right. David, you have a website? That I have a find? website, which is davidradovich.org. And um, also on Amazon, most of my t- titles are available there. Okay. Is that where a lot of poets sell their Yes. Uh, poems don't last that long at most bookstores. Is that right? Um, they kind of put them they, un- under the – use them as doorstops. Yeah, they t- yeah. take them away after a while. <laughs> yeah, so. we, we love Park Road books, and yes. they do yeah. keep our books. Right. At, you know, but after a while, when a book hadn't sold in a year, <laughs> they, they take I, it I, away. They I, say, I say that facetiously, <laughs> yes. but, you know, it's yes. like – they have to make room for the big bestsellers, right, that right. are coming in. And, and you don't uh, – the New York Times doesn't usually have a best-selling poet, poetry, no, poetry book, not. right? Yeah. And then there are always uh, readings. I mean, yeah. we, we drive around the country taking our books with us and right. selling a few at this reading or that yeah. reading. Always keep some in your uh, in your satchel or your trunk. Absolutely. Just in, just Absolutely. in case. You never know. Well, I, I like to tell this story where – I'm playing golf with a couple of friends of mine, and uh, one of them says, Landis, I heard about your new book. I, somebody said it was 
good. I, I'd like to get it. My other friend said, yeah, I've read it too. I'll loan you mine. Oh, <laughs> oh good. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, you know, Save it's kind of hard to sell those books, right? It, when you're, it really when, when all your When your friends who are the ones that are buying them are sharing them with each other, right? That is so true. <laughs> uh, well, look, it's been great having uh, both of you on the show today. I've learned a lot more about uh, poetry. Got to experience, a, and I just hit the mic, uh, I got to experience a you know these collected poems, which is is like a a bit like prose in some respect. I mean, yes. you, you can that crossover sell is there. So, uh, listeners, if you've never really tried poetry, you should uh, pick up these books and read them because there is a connected story that that runs through them. So, uh, thank you all both for being on the show. Thank it's you, Landis. It was really a treat. Yes. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we meet Jeff Jackson whose latest book, Destroy All Monsters, has been called The Last Rock Novel, and what Ben Marcus called a book that surges with new century anxiety and paranoia, a clear-eyed, stone-cold vision of what's to come. The book deals with an epidemic of violence sweeping the country where small punk rock bands are the targets. It's a literary mystery of the music at the core, and and fittingly, has a side A and a side B. You actually have to flip the book over to read an alternate track of the same story. We'll also play some of Jeff's music, on the show because he's in a punk rock band too if you liked our show please tell your friends and please leave a review on apple podcast reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast you can subscribe to the podcast which is free on apple podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast our social media links if you're into that sort of thing are at our website charlottereadpodcast.com if you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show you can email us at our contact page on the website And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>